What's my most favorite thing to do? To talk. Every week I'll do just that. We'll feature national and international movers and shakers, experts in their fields, and all around interesting people with something more than great to say. No holds barred. We'll tackle every topic imaginable, especially for women over 40. This is Conversations with Sima. Please stay tuned. Today we'll be talking with an AIDS activist, motivational speaker, health educator, and writer about AIDS awareness, sexual responsibility, and self-respect. Scott Freed has spoken everywhere from Harvard to Harlem to Honduras to Halifax. Why the H's? Why are there edges in these words? There's a reason for that, a really good reason for that. When we first started studying HIV, we called it the H disease. In 1981, we said HIV was a disease that affected people who were a part of a risk group that began with the letter H. So if you were a homosexual or hemophiliac or a Haitian or a heroin addict, you were at risk for getting infected with HIV, and we forgot or didn't consider the most important H, which is human. That's why the H. Scott Freed has touched over a million people with his lectures and workshops. He is a very powerful human being with an incredibly powerful message. His message happens to be one of love, responsibility, sacredness, and self-respect. He touches on diverse topics such as eating disorders, suicide, self-abuse, affirmative consent, bullying, coming out, addiction, safer sex, and broken hearts. Scott is the author of three books, has a podcast, a YouTube channel, and he lives in New York City. So welcome, Scott. Thank you. Tell me briefly about your story and your journey to your present life. I got infected in 1987. It was my first time having sex with a man. I was 24. I didn't think it would happen to me for a number of reasons. One, because I'm Jewish. Two, because I, it was only one time. And three, because I just thought it wouldn't happen. And people like me don't have to worry about things like that. And then I got infected and watched most of my friends, new friends, uh, die of AIDS. And there were about 130, there were exactly 132, and my boyfriend. And I didn't. I didn't die. And I thought I would at the time in the world when HIV and AIDS was cresting like a wave and uh, death was imminent. I survived, and I thought it would be really a good way to use the time I've been given to educate others about what I'd seen in the in the beginnings of the epidemic. So what compelled you to tell your story so openly and so often? I think someone else in your shoes might choose to never say this story. So I was at friend Richie's funeral. He was the 73rd friend to die of the many. And at his funeral, one of his friends read from his journal and I didn't want anybody reading from my journal because I looked around and thought this could be my funeral same people just different relatives so I thought maybe if I live my life as an open book there won't be any secrets revealed at the end so I started teaching and volunteering and in the very beginning it was really only because I wanted to be remembered it was the need to be remembered but as I started getting better as an educator and realized that this is about the students and not about me. And my message to them was about their survival, not mine. 
So what began as a rejoinder to Richie's journal at his funeral turned into a life's mission teaching students all over the world about how they can survive the arc of adolescence. So before you start telling me how you go about doing this and maybe some stats, which I love, do you feel like God has called you to this life? I don't know if we can say that God has called me or if I can say to this life. I'll answer it this way. When I got my results on June 1st, it was uh, 29 years ago, I was in an office in the Department of Health in New York City. And when I heard the words, I'm sorry, you're positive, or it's positive, HIV positive, the first thing I felt was a push, was a sort of a push from behind me into my future, into some sort of action. And so you're asking a spiritual question, I'll give you a spiritual answer. I do think in the moment I heard the words, you're positive, there was something that pulled me forward. In the way that everybody is called, we are all called to do something. We don't always hear it, but I believe we all are. I felt it, I heard something, and I moved forward. And the voice in my head, this prompt at that moment, said to me, are you ready? Are you ready to start living your life? And are you ready to stop running from your own death? Are you ready? So if I could answer honestly, I don't know that I was called to this life. I do know that the moment I heard the results, there was a, there was a, a prompt that said go. And I've been moving ever since. Would you imagine that had you not had this experience, your life would be going in a completely different direction? No, not at all. I do think that at some point, something would have happened that would have brought me into the arena of which I live and work right now. I I think that the things that interest me and the ways in which I've uh, created an existence are in line with who I am, and that would have happened. It would have happened if it wasn't HIV. It would have been somebody else in my life who died of AIDS. I'm not that different anybody else listening to me speak right now. I'm no more special. I'm no deeper. I'm no closer to God. I'm no more enough than your listeners. I'm just somebody who's doing my part. Do you understand the difference? I absolutely do. So let's talk about some stats. What can you bring to the table about number of AIDS cases a year, trends, regions, countries? We don't hear about AIDS as much as we used to when it first burst onto the scene. So what can you tell the listener? Well, what we know is that people are still getting infected with HIV today in this country, the United States, and around the world, but we're not seeing as many cases of people with what we call clinical AIDS because the HIV medication, the pharmaceuticals, are working. So what we have now is what we call a functional cure, and I say that with air quotes because it's not a cure, but it's one that functions as a cure. So for a person today in the United States who are to get infected with HIV, say, this year, if they were able to get on or access to medication, their levels of undetectability, their viral load, the amount of HIV in their bloodstream and other fluids in their body is 
lowered to levels of undetectability, which means that there's not a test that can even find it. That's how small it is, which means they're not able to transfer the virus. It is not a cure. It does mean, however, that they are functioning as somebody who is living well and healthy and maintaining a, a good life. The largest group of people getting infected with HIV today are black men and trans women. And that is because of the absence of education or empathy for those communities or access to medication and other things like that. Other countries, we see a rise in HIV in the usual places in, with women and in, in, in all gay, straight, it doesn't matter. If you're a person who's putting yourself at risk, you're able to get it. But because of great organizations, for instance, like the Clinton Foundation and others, in other countries, other continents, there is access to HIV medication, which we call H-A-A-R-T, stands for Highly Active Antiretroviral Therapy, pharmaceuticals, that are there getting the virus to undetectable levels as well. And is there a statistical analysis for number of cases this year, for example, versus 20 years ago? Yeah, we're seeing a lot less. I'm not going to give you a number. We're seeing a lot less cases of people getting infected. However, people still get infected. There are uh, so many people getting infected with HIV on a yearly basis, but we're not seeing people die of AIDS. So what we're ne- dealing with now in the, in the world from a public health perspective is how to keep these people with HIV alive, healthy, living functional lives. And are the pharmaceuticals expensive? Are they covered? Yeah, so they're covered and they cost without about twenty to $25,000 a year. So if you don't have insurance, you're going to be paying a lot of money out of pocket. If you do have insurance, health insurance, then it's covered by the insurance. Mm-hmm. So you have chosen to get your message out to mostly teens. And I'm wondering why you've targeted this group. And in a very simplistic way, what do you want them to learn? So it's teens and parents of teens, mm-hmm. and teachers of teens, and social workers and rabbis and people that work with teens. So it's not just the teen community, but it's the people who surround that community. And the reason for that is because there are teachers, and the world as I see it is only going to get better because they're a part of it, and we leave it to them. So I work with them. The reason I started working with teenagers is because when I got infected, I was 24 years old old myself, and I felt like I was I could relate most to, mostly to them. And then as I got older, it seemed to be something that I understood. I feel as though I'm a teen whisperer. I can read what's going on in their minds and in their hearts, and I can relate. I haven't forgotten what it was like for me to be a, a teenager. So I started working with teenagers, but I also work with parents and uh, adults and people who work with teenagers and trying to help them learn how to live with this arc, something I call the arc of adolescence, or poetically, I call it the private midnight. It's a poetic term for what is between the years 13 and 21, the the, the adolescent age when you're waiting for life to start, and it's a dark, lonely road. Metaphorically, poetically, a private midnight. So tell me some of the basic premises you bring to their table. One, you are enough exactly as you are with your eating disorder, your self-abuse issue, the exact knife against the skin, 
you are enough with the parents who get divorced, the overweight, the underweight, the bad grades, the curly hair. You exist and you breathe and you belong. You, who sometimes get stoned in your parents' basement on a boring Thursday night or gets drunk on the weekends at a frat party or refuses to use a con because you want somebody inside of yours because you feel like you don't exist. You belong. You are enough. You have value regardless of the activity and the reckless behavior that you bring to your life. Number two, we don't make sense. We, as human beings, especially teenagers, are contradictions. We say one thing, we do the other. When we give ourselves permission to not make sense, life starts to make sense. Number three, life is hard, so we need people to help us through it. We need arms. We need physically, we need arms people who will open their arms to us and hold us when life is hard and validate us when life is reckless with us. This is a term I coined. It's called the Khmer people, C-apostrophe-M-E-R-E, Khmer. They are the loyal legion of faithful followers who say to us when we are in pain, Khmer, Khmer, let me love you. Khmer, let me hold you. Khmer, let me feed you with something that will heal you. Number four, life is hard. We must be prepared for life's faithful aches, for those wounds, for the unintended or intended wounds, or the times in life where life just hurts. In those moments as a teenager or adult or parent of a teenager, it's really important for us to be prepared and ready to bow our head in the presence of pain and be at peace with life and its demanding circumstances. And finally, knowing that, above all things, when we were little boys and girls, we knew that this world was made for us, and everything in this world was ours. Everything we touched was for us, and everything we saw was a chance for us to explore. My goal is to give the teenagers and the parents of teenagers an opportunity to remember that elegance, the elegance of being a child, where we once knew that life was an endeavor that was an elegant one. And if we can remember that, maybe the recklessness would disappear just a little bit. We're talking today with AIDS activist, motivational speaker, health educator, and writer Scott Freed. Scott, I'm repetitively struck by the ignorance, naivete, or cluelessness of our society, especially our society, regarding AIDS, STDs, HPV. You know, it seems to me as if there is some amount of education that's that's taking place with our kids, but our kids are choosing not to hear the message and to go with what their friends tell them, what they felt like doing in the moment. And in many cases, they just seem to ignore all the warning signs. And I am going to put myself out on a limb to say that I think that there are vast numbers of kids who enjoy risky behavior. So how do you approach this? So I don't know if the word is that they enjoy risky behavior. I guess what I, I think is that it's familiar. Life has been reckless with them, so they get reckless with their lives. I would go with, I would go with that. I don't think that there's that much really comprehensive. Actually, I know for a fact there is not a thorough comprehensive sexual health curriculum in this country for every teenager. So I can't, I can't agree. 
they're not getting the information about STDs, they're not getting the information about HPV, and they're not getting the information about HIV. They're simply not. And if they are getting it in those few schools, those few amazing schools, synagogues, programs that are teaching teens about these topics, they're not remembering. And they're not remembering because it's not being taught with the same value that other things are being taught. If they're being taught something that's going to help them get into a good college, they'll remember it. If they're being taught something that's not given to them with the same value, they won't. Two things. Number one, there's an abject, manifest absence of comprehensive sexual health education in our country. It simply doesn't exist. If you ask a teenager today, anywhere in the country, what the letters HIV stand for, they will not be able to answer. And even if they did, that wouldn't save their lives. If you were to ask the harder question, like, what are the four fluids that transfer HIV? What's the difference between a viral and a bacterial STI? What's an STI? How do you protect yourself from uh, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and how do you use a condom correctly? The answers would not be good. They wouldn't always be correct. And part of that is because of the absence of education. And the other piece you're bringing is, I don't think that teenagers look for danger. I actually think that teenagers, when they feel that life has been reckless with them, whether it's a parent's divorce, they're not being able to lose the weight, giving their virginity to some guy or to some girl who ignored them the next day at school or online, looking in the mirror and not liking whom they see, staring back at themselves, their own reflection, to them, that feels what is a reckless life. I'm not suggesting that it is, but to them, it seems as so, a reckless life. And when that moment arrives, one of the options is to behave recklessly with themselves. And I'm a prime example. I, I gave my body to a stranger. He knew my secret. He knew he had HIV. I didn't know. He didn't say. And I got infected because I wanted to disappear. I wanted to hurt. I wanted to destroy myself because I didn't have the respect, the self-respect to use a condom to protect myself because nobody came to my school or interviewed me or I didn't hear an interview like you're giving me when I was younger. Hearing the words, you belong exactly as you are with the words in your pockets, with the secrets you keep, with the losses you carry. You belong. You have value. You are enough right here, right now. If your premise exists and people are hearing your message, how would you expect them to then incorporate that message into their own lives? And in some cases, would you agree that perhaps at the point at which you may talk to kids, they've endured a lifetime of their own rejection, their stories that can't be taken out of their cells? How do they incorporate what you're saying at the point at which you get to them? So a life of self-acceptance a life of self-improvement. That's what we're talking about here. But a life of self-improvement starts with a life of self-acceptance. So how do you incorporate this? You want to be a better person. You want to be more. You want to change. You start by accepting things as they are. And you accept things as they are by surrounding yourself with people who validate your pain. You surround yourself with people who validate your pain by knowing that you are safe in the universe. And you know that you're safe in the universe when you accept your contradictions and begin with the premise that you are enough. 
you change, we change. When we first understand that who we are as we are is enough. A life of self-improvement begins with a life of self-acceptance. Tell me a little bit more about the uh, recent technologies, the medical breakthroughs. Can you tell me something about this on a scientific level? So the most exciting thing I can tell you right now about HIV is something called PrEP, P-R-E-P, pre-exposure prophylactic. Prophylactic is a fancy word for preventative. PrEP is a drug. It's one pill. It's a combination pill. It's one pill that a person who is HIV negative would take six out of seven, preferably seven out of seven days of the week to prevent him or herself from getting infected with HIV by not using a condom. So if a person doesn't use a condom when they're having sex, if they're in a, what we call a serodiscordant couple, one who's positive, one who's negative, or if they are a sex worker, or if they are somebody who is using drugs and is not present enough to use or present of mind enough to use a condom, PrEP is a great pharmaceutical. It's called Truvada. The pill that we use is Truvada, and it stops, it arrests the virus from establishing a hold in the immune system so that a person who is having unsafe sex with somebody knowingly or unknowingly who themselves is positive, they will not get infected with HIV. From a public health perspective, PrEP reduces the amount of HIV in the population. From a personal perspective, it means that you won't get infected with HIV. It's available from pharmaceuticals, it's covered by most insurance policies, not all, but in order for it to work, you've got to be on it six, if not seven, out of the seven days of the week, and it's not a game, it's not a toy, it's not a drug to take when you're going on a vacation and then stop. It's a pill you take for the duration of the time that you're being uh, in the sexual community in a non-monogamous relationship or in a relationship with somebody who is discordant with you. But does it address STI or HPV, or is there anything else of value that it provides you? It, tr- it provides tremendous value against HIV. Right. And only HIV. Only and HIV. And I bless you for bringing all the other ones up. Sure. HPV is one of many STIs that PrEP does not protect you from. Mm-hmm. PrEP is amazing in terms of the HIV world. But PrEP does not protect you from any other STI, including HPV, for which we have, by the way, vaccines. vaccines. Yep. But it yep. does not protect you from chlamydia and syphilis and uh, hepatitis A, B, and C and trichomoniasis and, and all the other STIs that are out there, for which some have vaccines and some don't. Herpes we don't, but uh, HPV we do. What else is on the horizon? We're not talking in terms of medical breakthrough. That's not the direction that the HIV research is going. There's always going to be research in terms of the vaccinations, but we're not getting close to having a vaccine. But that's not stopping. The money still needs to go there, and the research needs to go there, and I applaud all the efforts in that area. The breakthrough isn't going to be in terms of, a, as far as I see it, a cure in a pill, but it's going to be more in terms of how we can get drugs like PrEP out into the uh, general population so that people will be protected, people who are HIV negative can be protected from getting infected. And those people who already are infected will be able to have access to medication that has even fewer side effects 
more cost-effective, easier to take, and longer-lasting. So what we're trying for, in terms of your word, breakthrough, is just more of a functional, manageable situation with HIV and more affordable, more available to everyone in this country and obviously in developing countries where we can stem the tide of spreading the virus. So what are some of the most common misconceptions about this disease? That it's over, that Magic Johnson was cured, that it's only something that happened in the 80s and 90s, that it was my generation's issue. HIV still exists. It's not going away. There is no cure. There's lots of research, but no cure itself in sight. And we still need money devoted to help with pharmaceuticals and with research and with support and with education. The greatest of all those is education. There is an absence, tremendous absence of comprehensive health education out there. And the greatest mythology that we've created in this past 15 years, since we've been watching the virus for about 36 years, since 1981, in the last half of that, part, last 15 of those years, we've, from an education perspective, stopped educating. And so the myth is that it's over and doesn't need to be taught. And that's simply not true. It was interesting you me- you mentioned Magic Johnson because I was going to ask you, the general public really does know that he is grappling with this. The general public was touched by a musical like Rent. So I'm wondering in what way do you think that this awareness will become more mainstream for the American public? So I'm going to contest you on this. The general population does not know that Magic Johnson was cured, not the people I speak to. I, I think we're talking about two different generations here. Our generation remembers 1991 in the New York Times article when he revealed his, disclosed his status, and then a decade later when he said, I'm not cured, but healthy and managing my situation. But a new crop of students are coming up and only go with what they've heard, the rumors they've been told, which is that he was cured. So it's not true that the general population believes he was cured. It's not true. They actually think he was. So I'd like to bust that myth. And secondly, there's Um, going forward, a tremendous need for us to be able to uh, continue to educate teenagers about what was and what will be happening with HIV. Rent, while it was a great musical, is not as popular today as it was 10, 15 years ago. So less and less do I meet students who raise their hand when I say, do you know the musical Rent? And it does tell our story. It tells my story. It is my story. I was in that support group, the one the musical was based on. Monday nights and Tuesday nights, the musical was written about us. The guy who wrote it, Jonathan Larson, wrote notes, took notes when we would speak. He'd sit behind me and the chair, the row behind me, and he'd write the words out of our mouths, and he'd put some of those words to music. So it is our story, but it was the story of 1988. AIDS is a much larger story. It's not just 1988. It's also 2017, and I'm trying to tell the story of the teenagers in 2017 of what their lives can be like because AIDS does exist but still there can be a good life in spite of that. Because this show is for women over 40 and because the population we're dealing with is really in mid-age my final question for almost all my guests is what do you hope your legacy will be? What is yours? I love the question Emma. Thank you for asking it. 
So I had a teacher in acting school who once said, and this is 1982, that the movie of the year was, it was Sophie's Choice versus Gandhi. And she said, when she saw both movies, she left the theaters thinking, Meryl Streep, what an amazing actress. Gandhi, what an amazing man. Here's the kind of man I want to be. Here's the legacy I want to leave. I don't want people saying, Scott Freed, what an amazing guy. I want them saying, when they leave my presence, I feel great about me, myself, being alive. When a student, a person, anyone in a lecture where I'm giving a talk is present, I would prefer that they leave thinking not what an amazing speaker I was, but leaving thinking how grateful they are for their lives, to be alive and to do something with their life. So my legacy isn't about being remembered. More so, it's about them doing something with their lives. We've been talking today with a motivational speaker, health educator, writer, and AIDS activist, Scott Freed. Thank you so much, Scott, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. We've been talking with Scott Freed. Scott can be found at www.scottfreed.com. I'm Sima Shapiro, your host of Four Women Over 40 Conversations with Sima. Thank you so much to the listener for joining us today. And until next time, I hope you take care. <laughs>